We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It is now 8.07 here at WCCO. Welcome back to Steel Talking. I'm your host, Geraldine Steele. It is what I love to do is sit here with you on a Sunday night. So thank you for joining us. I'm excited about this next guest because earlier this month, the U.S. Treasury released a report stating that the nation's debt had surpassed $31 trillion for the first time. $31 trillion. Wow. Many are asking, how did we get to this point? What are the biggest factors in the debt getting this high? And so much more. But we're going to find out and get the answers to those questions by asking Mark Goldwine. He is the Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. He joins us now on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. May I call you Mark? Uh, Mark is fine. All right. Thank you. Okay. First of all, I did not realize, you know, when I first thought about it, I went, well, you know, we have so many trillions of dollars. And I looked it up for 2022 and it looks like we are broke because we are not at 31 trillion today. Am I correct? Uh, So there's a few ways to measure debt, but we're either at 25 trillion or 31 trillion. Either way, it's a lot of dollars. Um, It's a record, not only in dollars, but even as a share of the economy, um, it's higher than any time except for one year after World War II. Okay. So the question for me, the big question, is we are here at $31 trillion. How bad is that? The economy is not going to melt down from debt being at $31 trillion. But it's in serious danger if our debt continues to rise rapidly as opposed to us at least slowing the growth. Um, it's in danger of persistent bouts of high inflation like we're having now it's in danger of slower economic growth and it's in some danger small but not zero of a financial crisis caused by just an overwhelmingly amount of debt right you know the washington i'm sorry not washington post but the um associated press wrote edging that we are edging closer to the statutory ceiling of roughly 31.4 trillion what do they mean by statutory ceiling yeah, so, so there's a cap called the debt limit that basically says you cannot borrow above a certain amount. But every time we hit that cap, we raise it. Right. And there's things we can do to sort of game it, but probably we're going to hit that cap maybe next fall. And politicians need to either raise it or we default. So what got us here? Um, it's, it's no one thing, um, but uh, basically we've had 20 years of fiscal irresponsibility, 22 years of fiscal responsibility across parties where we keep cutting taxes, we keep increasing spending, we don't pay for most things, 
and we've ignored the largest cost drivers that are already built into the budget, and that's especially the Medicare program and the Social Security program, both of which, by the way, are, are headed towards insolvency in their own right. So how long has it been? Well, it hasn't been that long at all. I know that. I really should ask, the, the money we have given, our government has given to the wealthy um, over the years, we're talking $2 trillion, I believe, was the last one I heard about, uh, read about. Um, and, and if we keep giving it to the wealthy and it's not going to those who really need it, uh, the tax cut, and then you give them more money um, so that they can keep giving and putting in and, and investing in our country. But I don't understand why they get to get the big numbers and then the rest of us, especially the middle class who pays all of the bills basically of this country, why wouldn't they also offer that kind of money to the middle class? Yeah, so in 2017, we did pass a $2 trillion tax cut that we didn't pay for it. Um, it did include middle class as well, tax cuts as well as tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporations. I'm, my problem isn't with any one tax cut or any one spending increase. It's that we keep doing this over and over again. We keep spending more money. We keep cutting more taxes. We don't pay for it. And we don't think about how to use those dollars efficiently. So some money goes to people that really need it. But in the process, we send a lot of money to a lot of people that really don't. Is this the same? Does this happen also for other countries? Do they find a way to make sure that they balance their budgets? Or do they find themselves where we are or close to? Yeah. So most most European countries um, have have some rules that so they can't get their borrowing get too far out of hand. So they don't need balanced budgets, but they have rules that prevent them from getting too far out of out of hand. Um, most other countries that are, are wealthy also have, frankly, more functioning political systems, um, often because it's just a prime minister. There isn't a president and a Congress that are of different parties. And so, yes, other countries absolutely have deficit and debt problems, but they're a lot better at fixing them than we are. So how do we fix it? Uh, at this point, look, we would need about $7 trillion over the next decade just to keep the debt from not growing fast in the economy. So I'm not talking about paying off the debt. I'm not talking about balancing the budget. I'm just saying having the debt grow at the same pace as the economy, $7 trillion. You can't do that without putting everything on the table. Um, we're going to have to make some reforms to the Medicare program, especially cutting excessive payments we're making to insurance companies, to hospitals for drugs. We're going to have to cap what we spend on defense and non-defense. We're going to have to reform Social Security. We're going to need to raise a lot more tax revenue. Uh, at this point, we have to do really a little bit of everything. And a lot of some things. When did we learn that it was 31, <laughs> that we were at this point? When did we learn that? You know, who knew um, first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this didn't, the day before it was 31, it was 30.9 something. So we knew it was coming. We didn't know the exact day because it sort of depends on the trading. But we knew this was coming. This is not a surprise. And I'm, I'm less worried. I know 31 trains a big number, and so that's what folks are worried about. But what I'm more worried about is if you look at our trajectory, again, as a, as a share of the economy, because bigger economy can afford more debt. As a share of the economy, historically, our debt has been about half. Right now, the debt is as large as the economy, 100%. Exactly. That's why I feel like we're broke. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's the problem. It would take a full year of everything we produce to pay, to pay our debt right now. And on our current course, it's probably going to be 200% within 25 years. And by the way... Um, Based on how politicians act, we're probably going to get there faster. 
So the the people, right, the Commonwealth, are we the ones that are making the mistakes? I don't think so. I think to get us to $31 trillion in debt, it has to come from some of those that you mentioned, like um, our military, uh, the Pentagon has so much money to, and we're, we're already engaged in Ukraine and so much more. Where do we start with the big numbers? Where do we need to go and say we need to pull this back? You suggested Medicaid and Medicare. Am I correct? Medicare, yeah. Medicare. So I think... So Medicare is the second largest government program, Mm -hmm. but it's maybe the best opportunity for um, efficiencies because so much. I'm not talking about cutting benefits, although we could we could argue about some changes in the margins. What I'm talking about is where are we paying certain kinds of hospitals too much money? Where are we overpaying private insurance companies? Where can we spend less on drugs? Where can we encourage more care efficiency, encourage people to um buy more generic drugs or take uh, order less unnecessary x-rays. So I think there's a lot we can do in Medicare to get more efficiency. And so I would start there. But yes, we're going to need to cut defense. We're going to need to look at Social Security, both the, the tax side, raising more revenue and adjustments to benefits. We're going to need to look at everything. We just the problem is too big to just focus on one part of the budget. So you really just threw a lot of the seniors on, in, under the bus. I mean, <laughs> well, look, really, yeah. seriously, I mean, you I, did. I don't, yeah, no, I don't agree with that. Again, so so in Medicare, the types of changes I'm talking about are actually going to make it a better, more value-based program. Tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, tell you more. So let me give you one little example. Right now, Medicare pays more money if you go to a doctor's office that's inside a hospital versus if you go to the exact same appointment at a private doctor. They pay more for the hospital. We should be paying the same. And if we pay the same for Medicare, it's going to save the government money. It's also going to save the seniors money because they'll have less cost sharing. So there's so much we can do to make Medicare more efficient. This isn't about throwing seniors under the bus. It's about making these programs more efficient and actually saving them so they don't go insolvent. I, I find it very difficult to, to because we talk about Medicare and Medi- Medicaid, excuse me, so often, I mean, every election that comes up, you know, there, there are certain things we talk about, taxes, Medicare, education, you know, they're always thrown into the fray and none of it is ever corrected. It's never corrected. So here we are at $31 trillion. And if we continue, that number continues to go up. We are, we are in desperate need. I mean, we are, we are in big trouble. I don't know if the United States can stay the United States, the way people see us, the way we help others. The United Nation, do we need to start dealing with that? Do we need to start cutting back on the United Nations? How far do we go? How much do we have to do in order to get this down? Yeah, no, look, I, I do worry very much about our standing in the world with all of this debt. But money we give to the United Nations or to NATO or things like that, those are we're talking about single-digit billions of dollars, whereas the Medicare program, for example, is almost a trillion dollars. So we should look everywhere, but we should really look where the, where the money is and where we can get the efficiencies. And by the way, that also means more taxes. And, and yes, we talk about this a lot and don't act as much as we should, but we actually just passed a major bill that includes serious reductions to Medicare drug costs that's going to save money for seniors and save money for the federal government. So we know we can do it. We just did it in the Inflation Reduction Act just a few months ago. All right, let's talk a little bit about the leadership in this country. We've had so many presidents talk about this, right? We need to pull back on Medicare. We need to do this. We need to do that. Some of the things you've mentioned we've been talking about for a long time. When will we ever do it? That's the question. Which president <laughs> no, will it be that's going to do it? Look, that's, that's, the, that's the $31 trillion question because – 
it's always easier to worry about the next election and not the next generation. And so they've all been kicking the can. Now, maybe with inflation surging so high, with interest rates starting to come up, they're going to see some instant reward to deficit reduction. Usually you don't see it instantly. Usually you see it sort of way in the future. And so maybe there'll be a little more incentive in the next Congress to act. But politicians always like to kick the can if they can. Why? Why? Because the things that you need to do to address the debt affect very specific types of people or very specific interest groups, whereas the benefit benefits everybody a little bit. And so it's easier to just say, well, everyone's going to be a little bit worse off than to have to say to a hospital, we're going to cut your payment or to say to um, a business, we're going to raise your taxes. And so they don't like to do it. They like to avoid the hard choices, assuming that some future politician will do it. Um, so they can win the next election. We have elections every two years in this country. I'm not suggesting we should have less elections, but it, it changes the attention of our leaders. They're not focused on what's best for the country. They're focused on how do I stay, how do I stay in office. It's remarkable to me. It's, it's starting to remind me of the story of, um, um, my goodness, what is that island about 1,200 miles out or 2,200 miles out from Chile? Um, uh, gosh, with the big heads on it, forgive me. What did you say, Jonathan? No, 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 not Galapagos. I'll, I'll think of it. But they had a terrible story where they kept feasting off of everything, right? Uh, everything that they had, they used it all the way until they had none left. And that's my concern here for our country. Is it going to get to the point where we have nothing left? And if we have nothing left, what happens? Well, I, I don't think it's going to get that bad because we still have a very vibrant economy. And Do we? the truth of the matter is pro- Probably the worst case scenario, uh, I shouldn't say that, probably the bad case scenario is basically what we're experiencing now. So we have, which is, is, it's very harmful, like this very high inflation. But even this very high inflation, I don't, I don't think this spells the end of the country. Um, but, it's gonna, but it could spell the end of our vibrancy, you know, the end of our leadership in the world, the end of our ability to be the largest, most successful country. So I don't think this is sort of an extinction level event if we don't solve the debt. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's, it doesn't mean it's not troubling. It's very troubling that we're not dealing with this. It is. And I, I don't know who is going to step forward because it's got to be not just a group of people, but there has to be one single person that knows exactly how to deal with this. Who would you suggest that person be? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, the president of the United States has to take leadership on this issue, and he or she is going to need support of people in both parties. I don't think... I don't think we can solve this with just Democrats or just Republicans. Just Democrats or just Republicans can make progress, but I think the problem is too big. It's going to take both parties, and it's going to take presidential leadership. But it's going to take both parties to come together, and that seems impossible today. It does. It does feel that. Although, you know, we get bits of them coming together. They came together in the infrastructure bill, on the guns bill. Um, so it, it's not impossible, but it does feel, it does feel <laughs> very challenging. It's very challenging. Money talks. It's, it's the loudest voice we have in this country, money or the lack thereof. Um, and, and it just appears that people are suffering, continuing to suffer during this pandemic. And knowing that we don't have any money left, we're going to have to be borrowing. And I don't even know if other countries are willing to, to, um, to borrow, to, to lend fun, funds to us. Are we still at that point? Do we still have relationships where they will continue to to support us when it comes to this type of debt? Yeah. Yes. I mean, to be honest, lending from other countries 
is barely is barely going up. It's barely covering our new borrowing. Most of our new borrowing is either coming from the American public mm-hmm. so, or the Federal Reserve. And now the Federal Reserve is pulling back. So we're counting for the most part on our own citizens and our own companies to keep buying the debt. Right. And why not, instead of going after Medicaid or Medicare, sorry, um, and trying to pay this down, you know, getting rid of that or pulling back on that, why don't we go to the countries that haven't paid us back, that aren't paying their way through, even at the United um, Oh, my goodness. Forgive me. I, I have brain fog a little bit from COVID. But it's frustrating to know that there are other countries that haven't paid their debt to us yet. And if we're not going after that first, then why go after Medicare first? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, again, I just want to reiterate with Medicare is the types of changes that we can make to Medicare are ones that are going to make the program cheaper and better, not the ones that are going to be throwing people off the rolls or, um, you know, dramatically increasing their premiums. Um, we should, again, where there's money to be saved, we should try to save it. Yeah. But, you know, the debt that we owe to very low-income countries, excuse me, the debt we're owed from very low-income countries yes. just isn't large relative to the size of our budget. It's large for those countries, but it's not that large to us. And so we can push for that money harder. But, you know, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, your household is – is spending $20,000 a month more than you're bringing in income. And instead of looking at, you know, the, your $100,000 car, you're, you're hitting up the guy that owes you 10 bucks because he hasn't paid you back. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I tell you, it's been a pleasure having you, Mark Goldwine. I wish I had more time with you. You are the Senior VP and Senior Policy Director, uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Wow, responsible federal budget. Let's see where we're going. I'll be paying attention. Maybe someday. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. (sighs) I have to exhale. We'll be right back. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoy the conversation we just had. And it's, I'm curious, you know, to know if you want to text us and let us know 
uh, what you think about this. You know, here we are at $31 trillion in debt. We don't even have that much money. <laughs> we don't. So I do see it as us being um, basically broke. But, of course, um, as you heard our guest saying that, you know, it doesn't work that way. You know, we still have um, quite a bit to collect from, from certain ways in certain ways and uh, that we'll be just fine and that this is happening around the world and that sort of thing. So I'd love for you to send us a text and let us know. We'll see if we can read a couple of those um, later on tonight. And I'm just curious to know what you thought about that. Um, I know when someone says to me, Medicare is the first thing. Medicare, Medicare is what we're going to go after. We need to, you know, take that down. Hey, people have been depending on that for so long. And the, and the cost, as he mentioned, the cost in hospitals and that sort of thing, it is astronomical. And, you know, we're just moving towards a big, gigantic accident, you know, where we're going to crash or not. Um, but he made it seem like, no, we won't crash. We'll find a way to get out of this, but it's going to take all of us to get out of this $31 trillion debt. And I don't know how much is being spent by, that we give to other countries for their um, um, protection of their countries and also them trying to protect us, our, you know, our allies, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm curious. So I'm going to do some more research because I'm curious about how the whole world responds to a country like ours who is now at $31 trillion in debt. All right. We had some great presidents that brought us down, man. It really took those that number down. But um, here we are. We never th- thought we'd get there. I think what, what Mr. Goldwine was really stressing is that we really haven't had a balanced budget since Clinton. Right. Um, that was the last time. Almost, we, though, President Obama had did a great job putting money back in. Right. Know? But I, I think what he was basically talking about is ever, ever really since September 11th, ever since that time period, there's been money that's been spent on different things, different things, different things, whether it was September 11th, what, whether it was the war in the Middle East, whether it was the recession of 2008 and 2009, whether it was the uh, the COVID pandemic, we've had different things that have come along where we may have not anticipated them as, as well as we should have or um, didn't think it would cost as much to get out of that. Now, you know, you were talking about the war in Ukraine where we're sending aid to Ukraine mm-hmm. for that. I don't know if we're ever going to see that money come back. No, and I don't know if we need to. Here's the thing, Afghanistan and Iran, that was a whole big, gigantic mess. We never should have went. Yeah. We never should have been there. Yeah. We never should have spent all of those years. What was it, a decade? Two decades. Two decades. Years. Two decades. It's yeah. so ridiculous. You want to know where the money is? That's where it went. Okay, we got to take a break. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for sticking and staying with us right here on WCCO Radio. You're listening to Steel Talking. I'm really excited about my next guest because I'm going to ask you this question. Have you ever heard of historical demography? Have you? It's a course of study that Dr. Stephen Ruggles has dedicated his distinguished career to over the past few decades. Now, Dr. Ruggles established the Integrated Public Use Microdata Series, or IPUMS, project in 1991 to dive into the changing demographics that make this nation what it is from the past to today. Now, that work is being recognized with one of the nation's highest academic honors, as Dr. Ruggles has been awarded as a 2022 MacArthur Fellow and will receive one of the famed genius grants from that organization. He joins us now on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. Welcome, sir. What a pleasure. 
I'm glad to be here. Dr. Ruggles, how did this come to be? How did you know? What was the moment when you said, this is what we need to know? Well, um, I suppose that uh, it was in 1991 when I realized that uh, it was just too hard to try to figure out uh, uh, what has happened in our society over the last 150 years or so and uh, started uh, working on building this database uh, to to try to describe long-run changes, first in the United States and then uh, in, in other countries. So if you were to, the, for those that are listening and they're not quite sure why this is important, um, what give us one sentence that would really help them understand how important this is, because we have all been talking about um, how our demographics have been changing um, from day to day, not month to month or year to year or decade to decade, but isn't it really day to day? Yeah, well, it is day to day, but I look at the long run. I don't look at the uh, the short run fluctuations. Uh, uh, and it's the long run where you can really see the the dramatic changes that are going on. I mean, uh, 150 years ago, we were a society that was essentially an agricultural society where there weren't very many big cities. Uh, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't that different from 40,000 years ago. Uh, uh, and, and, and in the last couple of hundred years, uh, everything has been transformed. Uh, we we uh, have had uh, industrialization, urbanization, immigration, uh, and, and, and a, a massive demographic transition, a, a complete shift in the ways families uh, are, are structured. Uh, and, and all of this is uh, uh, something that has been very hard to even find out what happened. And and now we know, thanks to massive new data sets. So these massive new data sets. Okay, the clear thing for me is that we all know how important um, demographics really mean, and not just to elections and that sort of thing, but to our world, just the whole world. And I'm just wondering, where do we fare here in the United States when it comes to really understanding how important this is, or are people really looking past it, going, yeah, yeah, we've heard some of that before, because this to me is seriously important. Yeah, well, I I agree, and and you know this is a this is a golden age we're in 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 terms of historical demography and quantitative social and economic history generally. We've had a, a data revolution uh, going on in the last uh, uh, in the last decade or so, uh, uh, partly uh, through collaboration with genealogical organizations, where we now have complete information for the United States on everybody who was enumerated between 1790 and 1950. Uh, and, uh, and, and within the Census Bureau, we've got every, everybody from 1960 to 2020. And so, and so we really have uh, an extraordinarily granular picture. And we can trace people across their lives and over generations uh, to see how people change over the life course. So we should, can look at, for example, geographic and social mobility uh, uh, in the 19th century compared with today. And, and what we've discovered is that for the first time, uh, we, we've discovered that uh, instead of economic opportunity opening up 
over time. The, 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 the ladder for success has been getting more and more difficult to climb. And also, people aren't moving as much as they used to. Back in the 19th century, most people moved between states uh, uh, over the course of their lives. Now people are much more likely to stay their whole lives uh, in the county they were born in. It's so true. We have so many um, uh, Minnesotans who have never crossed over the the river to come into Minneapolis from St. Paul. So it's really quite remarkable. Let's talk a little bit about immigration and its effect on your your findings. Well, immigration is, um, you know, obviously uh, uh, been uh, uh, um, a key former of our, our of our nation, uh, uh, and we're we're just now getting up close to the percentage of foreign-born population that we had uh, near the turn of the century, around uh, 1910, when uh, 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 the uh, first massive wave of immigration uh, uh, came along. Uh, and so, so we've been here before, um, and uh, um, now we're, we're essentially returning to that. But it, it it's uh, extraordinary, and in, in both periods, we find that um, the uh, 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 pace of assimilation uh, and economic upward mobility of immigrants is fantastic, uh, and um, the uh, uh, immigrants' uh, kids, in particular, uh, do better than the native-born of native parentage, um, and... Uh, so it's it's something that strengthens the country. So where do you go next? What is your next move when you have uh, accomplished all that you have accomplished and you have so much data uh, to share with the world, not just us here in this country, um, of how this all works? But what is the next thing for you when it comes to knowing that we are moving, uh, we're not moving as much as we used to? What does that mean to our survival? Um, are there other things we need to do that you could give us advice about when it comes to moving, um, trying to figure out what is my, where is my place? Where's my place? A lot of Americans, we don't know where our place is just yet. So tell us what's next. Well, what I'm, uh, one of the things I'm working on now is trying to figure out what's happening uh, with uh, marriage and cohabitation. You know, over the last 50 years, uh, the, the, the marriage rate has gone from the highest in our history to the lowest in our history by far. Uh, and, and now people are marrying at very late ages. And, 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 you know, uh, it's not that it's being replaced by cohabitation because uh, 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 cohabitation is also declining now. Uh, and so what we have is more and more young people who are not partnered in any way. Uh, and it, it's unprecedented in history. It's not just in the United States. This is occurring uh, in all of the developed world. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out what are the drivers of this. I think, you know, and there are a bunch of things, uh, and and one of them is that the economic opportunity for young people, particularly young men, uh, is uh, is is a lot lower than it was 40 or 50 years ago. My goodness, a lot lower. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the income of uh, men aged. Uh, uh, 25 to 29 years old uh, has declined in in real terms 
uh, for the median for the whole population by almost 40%. Uh, so uh, it's it's really stunning. I mean, people quote, oh, income's higher than, than it was. Well, that's only because household income is higher, and that's because of the rise of uh, uh, female labor force participation. So now you have two earners. Back in 1960, you would have had one. But uh, the incentives, uh, uh, the marriageability of young men has declined dramatically. So I think that's part of the story, but I don't think it's the whole story. I also think that there's been a big cultural shift. When you talk about historical data, you know, I've often wondered, do they realize whether or not we were absolutely correct in in getting those numbers so that you can do what you do to make sure that we have the information? Because, you know, every time when when we didn't have um, computers and we didn't have um, ways of doing it like we do today, um, was is that a bad idea? Have we really been good at um, keeping these numbers close to us, knowing that we we know where we've been, where our people have been, because I know ancestry in our family really means a lot. You know, who went where, when, even back way back yeah. um, to, to maybe the 1800s even. So I just wonder about that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, generally speaking, the core source that we have, the historical source that goes way back, uh, is, is the census. We had the first regularly scheduled census in the world, uh, starting in 1790. Right. Uh, and generally speaking, the quality of the census has improved over the uh, centuries, uh, uh, but not lately, you know, and the 2020 census was kind of a disaster. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's partly due to, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump trying to introduce a citizenship question at the last moment. But then we had the, the pandemic, on top of that, and so uh, there's this huge undercount problem in 2020, particularly, particularly for minorities and especially for Hispanics. Um, and so, so it's not like things just continuously get better, you know. And it gets harder and harder to take surveys and stuff like that because people people don't answer their phones anymore. Uh, you know, they screen everything, and uh, it, it, um, it, it, you know, state. It, it, it is it is a difficult situation right now, um, and it's compounded uh, in 2020 uh, in in the period since 2020 by uh, the Census Bureau is going nuts about uh, disclosure control and uh, um, injecting random noise into the data that makes it uh, um, uh, unreliable as well. So so uh, we're not in good shape at the moment. We're not in good shape. So when do you think we will be in better shape? Well, I'm hoping that the uh, uh, um, the, the, the census fair will come to their senses. One of the things we could do is start uh, collecting data from administrative sources uh, uh, if, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of, lot of uh, interactions people have uh, with uh, – Social Security, uh, uh, IRS, uh, uh, and so on. And, and Census Bureau has been pretty hands-off in the past and not used these sources. But, you know, we might have to because uh, we, we do need the data. We need to know what's going on. 
We do need to know what's going on. But, of course, sir, as you already know, um, just collecting data, you can say that to different um, groups of people from all over the world, and many of us are just terrified of it because we don't know how much data is being collected. Some tell us that, no, 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 you'll know, and we'll only go so far, but we go further and further and further. Yeah, well, um, I mean, we haven't. Uh, and I mean, the government has not. The government doesn't have a very well integrated uh, data at all. Um, uh, the private sector, you know, uh, the uh, all the companies that are collecting data about us. But right. of course, people click and sign off on that. Uh, uh, you know, they they uh, people are happy to give up all their information uh, to to uh, uh, you know Facebook or or to the bank or to, uh, you know, all these people that uh, uh, um, sell the data then. And um, so, so I kind of, I kind of think that um, if there's a threat to privacy, it's, it's much more the private sector than it is the government. Dr. Stephen Ruggles, I am so thankful that you joined us tonight. Professor of History and Population Studies at the University of Minnesota, you are so incredible. And I really look forward to more of your work. I hope that I can have you on again sometime. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. My goodness. Boy, you hear about historical demography and you just kind of (laughs) go, really? Oh, my goodness. It is quite remarkable. He is a remarkable man. He is certified genius and uh, he is at the University of Minnesota. It's just remarkable. We are so fortunate here in this great state of Minnesota. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. My goodness, I am still thinking about the conversation we just had with a genius. My goodness, I get nervous <laughs> sometimes. Um, my um, The man I was married to for 20 years uh, actually tested on the cusp of genius. And so living with someone that brilliant, that bright, um, really um, kind of opened my eyes to uh, other types of things to read, other thing, other ways to look at the world and um, it was it was quite um, remarkable tonight. It was uh, the University of Minnesota professor awarded MacArthur Fellowship, and of course, you heard his name several times. Dr. Stephen Ruggles, Regents uh, Regents Professor of History and Population Studies, and Director of the Institute for Social Research and Data or Data Innovation at the University of Minnesota. He has been honored by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation as one of this year's MacArthur. Fellows, commonly known as the Genius Grant, by the way. The fellowship is regarded as one of the nation's most prestigious awards for intellectual and artistic achievement. Really quite remarkable, man. Um, you know, when you are, when you're sitting among a genius, uh, it is, it's startling. It is absolutely startling. Have you ever sat with a genius before, Jonathan? What are you talking about? Okay, then. What are you talking? I oh, am, you are you are the genius. Yes. <laughs> Just think of my business. The you know the the old Your business card, uh-huh. the old business card from the Looney Tunes. Wiley Coyote, super genius. <laughs> See, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was it was remarkable. I would love to know more about this Ipum. The you know I P U M Impums. It's called oh, Ipums. 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 Oh, Ipums. Yes. Yep, that's how the the acronym is said. Ipo. That's, that's how why I wouldn't it. say it. I wouldn't say IPUMS. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, man, I don't know if that's right. But yes, yeah, it is said IPUMS. How about that? It was just wonderful, really. All right, you guys. Coming up next, of course, is is a uh, center stage.
all things arts and entertainment. We just believe you ought to know about it. And, of course, we've got some guests. Uh, there was one that we weren't able to touch base with last Sunday, but we are definitely going to go there this this um, this Sunday, tonight. So stay tuned. We've got some really great guests for that hour. And then the Mom and I, Michael Hour, I want to let you know that um, Michael cannot join us tonight, but he will be back next Sunday. Um, finally, he's been on vacation, finally, at Amazon. You don't get to do that much. Um, so, yeah, he's going to join us next Sunday, but uh, tonight Jonathan and I will have a good time. And anytime you want to join us, you know you can, right? All you have to do is dial 461 or text 461. I don't have that right. 651-461-9226. Let me say that again. (laughs) 651-461-9226. All right, we'll be back. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.